Welcome to Transformations with Goddess Velma B. And I want to give thanks and a shout-out to Derek Gibbs for that beautiful song, All Is Well. And we want to focus on all being well with us within the transformation needed so that we can take our places as equal human beings in the leadership of the world like we should be, (laughs) the leadership of the world, Ashe. So let me just say that tonight Queen Mother will not be with us. I know it's sad, but she's at something very exciting. Tonight, Queen Mother is attending the 5th Annual 2013 Tear Spirit Awards event. And we know that the tear is Barbara and Tear representing, and Queen Mother is a member of the board of the National Black Theater founder, Barbara Antier, and has been a board member since its founding. And Queen Mother wanted me to remind you all that to be with her in prayer, and if you're in New York, to stop by on Wednesday, June 19th, for the Wiley College Alumni Juneteenth Freedom Day, the 6th annual Juneteenth. Freedom Day celebration, and that is Queen Mother's alma mater, Wiley College in Texas. And Queen Mother uh, does the Juneteenth, uh, no matter where she is, she does the Juneteenth um, uh, celebration. And uh, I want to just say that um, if you're in New York, you need to get there. It's at the National Black. Uh, uh, theater, and the National Black Theater is now the National Black Theater Institute of Action Arts, and Ashe, and they've been keeping soul alive since 1968, and Founders Day is the celebration that they do where they are honoring um, Tear Spirit Award. Uh, recipients and Queen Mother is as a board member has to be there and we'll miss her but we know that she is definitely somewhere where she is um, needed and um, blessed blessings to the people that she is giving blessings to uh, I want to just uh Shout out again to Juneteenth Celebration, Remembering a Day of Freedom, and uh, that is brought to you by Wiley College alumni. Queen Mother still is active in her alumni association. So we need to say ashe, and we need to do the best we can to do that. That starts at 2 p.m., and it goes to 7 p.m., and... They are going to have all kinds of fun, freedom testimonies, freedom poetry. They're going to be vendors there. That is the College of the Real uh, Great Debaters, the film with uh, Denzel Washington, where he took the kids around 
Well, this is the real college that it comes out of. And Queen Mother's um, events are always fantastic. And she's going to even have uh, some of her kids from her cultural enrichment corner bringing their um, things together. It's going to be a Texas-style uh, menu. So I want to encourage everybody in New York, to um, check out Queen Mother and Ashe. Uh, I see our guest speaker is on. Um, before I bring him on, I want to um, send out a prayer because today's show is about being daddy's little girl. And I want to send this prayer out. I honor and salute Mother Earth. I honor and salute all the divine spirits of heaven and earth. I ask for every little girl born in this century to experience the protection and love of a daddy. May our world community rise to protect children from greedy people who would hurt our kids. I pray for all of you family, our guests, our hosts, that we may be empowered with fulfilling our destiny of bringing the word forward so that we can change our culture and embrace it and rise above the negativity that seems to want to put everything into a money situation. And I pray that for the wellness and good health in abundance for our elders, and they are a blessing for all people on earth. And I say, and I am um, truly a daddy's girl. So I just want to say that right off the bat. Dr. Terrence White, greetings and blessings. Greetings. Greetings. Shut up, Yanine. I say, are you on your speakerphone? Uh, No, ma'am. Oh, well, it must be mine too loud. I say, I say, you know what? It really does my heart really, it expands and just, I just feel such a excitement when I talk to you or your wife because you guys are some powerful, wonderful, giving and just, Outstanding people. Ashe. Ashe Pupu, Greetings. You're too generous. <laughs> oh, I'm not. You guys, I mean, um, today we have a couple of things that we're going to talk about. And I, uh, I want to um, share with everybody as a doctor, you know, your time is highly highly valuable, you know, as all of our time is, but just the idea that you're a professional and that you work at a a job that is not traditional in our career manuals, you know. I mean, even as a counselor, I don't think I've ever talked about archaeology as a career. (laughs) So, you know, I say, and, you know, just the... Of love and stuff that you bring with you, but I want to start out by talking about I am a daddy's girl, and um, I uh, got mad with my dad 
when I was about four or five years old, and I held that a long time. And I ain't want to give him hugs or nothing. I was mad at my dad, and, you know, he was strong, and I was strong so that, you know, I I blocked that path of that love for that many years. And, you know, you have a little girl, and I know she's a daddy's girl. <laughs> and I really want you to speak on, you know, the relationship between daddy and his daughter. And um, I know that I hurt my dad when I did that, you know. Mm-hmm. And perhaps... Um, Mothers will understand that even if you're a single mom, you know, try to get that involvement with that daddy if he's worthy because every girl needs a dad to protect and love her, every girl. This is true, Ashe. Well, yeah, um, I certainly, it's certainly a different trip you know, dealing with um, a daughter versus a son. You know, I know there's folks out there who might be under the impression, you know, you can um, teach, you know, boys and girls, you know, the same way or maybe expect similar things from them or, you know, and to a certain extent, you know, I agree, but it's, you know, I've certainly become a believer, you know, that boys and girls need different things now that I'm coming to experience, you know, both aspects, you know, of... um, this gender situation, and uh, you know, certainly, uh, I, I, I'm blessed with a beautiful daughter, and she's a, a real girly girl, and um, it, it really is, uh, you know, something for men in this society to have to relate in such a different way. You know, we can kind of be chummy and and be rough and tumble with our sons, and you know, daughters. You know, they might like some of that, but there's definitely um, a need to you know get with a uh, a softer side sometimes, you know, too, and with other things, you know, that, um, you know, a lot of little girls are going to be into, you know, flowers and, um, you know, just aspects of aesthetics and, um, you know, different different types of emotions, you know, and, and gentleness and other things, you know, that I think, you know, boys might not be so expecting of, you know, not that they might, that they don't need nurturing too, but, it's definitely a different thing, you know, and so it's it's um you know, for many of us as men we're not socialized either explicitly or um indirectly, you know, to you know, how to um you know, um be nurturing parents but for a daughter, you know, for a son it's it's one thing. For a daughter it's definitely another, you know, but to 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 just reach inside and to um think about how a girl's needs might be different, you know, and it's um it's so much so different. It's um I I heard a saying one time or it might even even been on your show, you know, um a um girl's father is, you know, like one of the first men she will ever fall in love with and um, you know, for the rest of her life she'll be uh, looking fatherhood relationship as a model for you know boyfriends or you know partners, husbands, spouses, all along those those lines, and so um, 
we definitely have to be mindful, you know, of a whole range of things in terms of how to nurture, how to um, teach love, how to be loving, you know, and these are things we're not always encouraged to do, you know, as men in this society. We're taught to to be protectors, certainly, you know, but to, um, you know, open ourselves up and to, you know, engage in a different type of nurturing with our daughters, you know, that just creates a need for us to, to, you know, cultivate a different part of ourselves and um, to, you know, think carefully about that relationship. Because as you say, uh, you know, there's uh, little things even early on in life as your own experience illustrates, you know, can be really impactful and powerful, you know, for the rest of a girl's life or the rest of a woman's life even. And um, we have to, you know, act with wisdom as fathers. We have to act with uh, compassion, with sensitivity and Again, you know, these are things that, you know, some of us as men are going to have to work harder at um, if we don't have those kind of role models. Some of us who are fathers and who want to be leaders are going to have to work on teaching our boys and and the young men in our community these things as they become fathers. Um, So I think that's one of the most crucial things. You know, another thing, you know, is is about protecting themselves, too. You know, I think um, that's another one of those kind of generalizations we make as a society, you know, women being more open emotionally, perhaps, and, you know, we have to teach our daughters to, you know, love and be loving, but to also protect their hearts, you know, because, um, as you suggest, you know, there are people who are willing to take advantage, you know, of of them and... um, we have to, you know, be good examples so that they look for good things, you know, if we're going to be a good father. And we have to teach them to, how to be discerning and to to uh, act in their interpersonal relationships with both their hearts and their heads. Shay, that is true. I know that um, as you were speaking and, you know, it just dawned on me that um, most of my uh, relationships really had to do with power and control because ever since that point I I sought to emulate my dad because he mm-hmm. had the power in the relationship. Mm-hmm. So that a little compassion on his side to say, you know, uh <laughs> you know, uh I know I beat you but you was doing the wrong thing. But you know what my father was his way or no way. So he was, you know, he was, he wasn't a um, uh, a real talker in that, you know, he was uh, able to express himself in a gentle way. He was rough. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that um, the interpersonal relationships that we form later on is very important and it's based on you know, how little girls interact with that first male in their lives. Grandfather, you know, that could be a daddy, a uncle. But whoever it is, you have to be mindful that you are teaching a lesson. You know, every time you interact, you're teaching your daughter whether or not she's valuable, you know, 
and, you know, how she is to be, uh, value herself. That's right. You know, it's um, another thing I think is important um, about daughters and girls is um, teaching, you know, um, confidence. But, you know, as you suggest, you know, it's not like, you know, power is a good thing, you know, if used the right way. But um, I'm just I was just thinking about the flip side, you know, what you were talking about in terms of power, the power dynamic, you know, it's, you know, clearly that can go wrong and um, if it becomes a pattern whereby, you know, we're teaching our kids and or they're, you know, taking away things and it, it becomes about power struggles for the rest of their lives, you know, that's one thing. But on the flip side, too, you know, we have to teach confidence so that they can empower themselves, you know, because clearly there's a, a long history of uh, bias against women, you know, having positions of power and being in leadership positions, um, claiming their contributions to society, whether it's through monetary form or whether it's through having the kind of esteemed status, you know, that they deserve as, you know, um, primary reproducers, you know, of society, um, you know, in terms of of taking a, an important role in, in raising children and having children physically. Um, but clearly, you know, there's... Um, not, and I won't even say exclusive to, to Western culture, you know, as Dr. Charles Finch talks about in terms of Kemet in ancient Africa. You know, patriarchy has long affected many societies in this world, and we're, I think, finally starting to move away from that, you know, as, as globally in some cases and around the world. But we have a lot of work to do, you know, to um, Make sure women, you know, hold their rightful place in society, and their work is valued. Their their efforts are valued, and that starts, you know, at, at home with little girls, you know, teaching them to be confident. And uh, in cases where they might um, walk into a room or walk into a a um, line of work uh, where there might not be a lot of other women, I certainly have faced this as a as a a um, person of African descent, you know, in, in my line of work where there are not very many people like me, right, even, you know, so that's, it's a parallel sometimes with, I think, women um, being in certain lines of work where they might not be traditionally welcome or there might not be a lot of them, you know, that confidence is is really important um, in helping them to be the best they can. Okay, that's true. And, you know, it really does... Um, make a difference for daddies to be able to um, get down with little girls and help them to, you know, uh, exert their femininity, you know, that aesthetic thing right. makes them dress up, you know, it's, it's important. Mm-hmm. And as we move forward, I mean, my dad was from the era of, you know, just getting out of slavery kind of thing, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, he 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 really did the best that he knew. You mm-hmm. know, and he was always a protector and a provider. And, you know, we never had to want for anything. We didn't have to move around, we had shelter, you know, we didn't worry about the adult issues. But clearly there was opportunity for 
you know, talk and and for him to, you know, get to know his daughters better, like, mm-hmm. you know, a one-on-one because he didn't feel that children knew, you know, he was from the era of children best quiet, <laughs> you know, right. silent, not heard. Right. And this, this this generation, we can't keep children silent. We I can't think. put them to the side and say, you know what, you be quiet in that corner or whatever. <laughs> you know, or, you know, even beat them. We've mm-hmm. got to find a way that um, we don't, because beating is a part of the slave syndrome. That's not really a mm-hmm. part of legacy of Africa. That's true. That's true, yeah. Um, you know, it's the the whole issue of gender really needs to be um looked at carefully, you know, as you were suggesting and we have to reflect on, you know, what are um I think sometimes and I see this in the classroom often, um, where people will bring up issues about masculinity and femininity and, you know, rightfully so, you know, critical of, of how you know, society and our institutions and um, many commentators um, portray them and represent them, you know, but oftentimes people only can think of of what's wrong about femininity or masculinity, you know, but oftentimes when I ask students, okay, well, let's flip the script then, you know, what exactly about these conversations can we take away that will help you know, black people will help African people and will help all people ultimately. You know, people are often very silent on that issue. And, um, you know, that's, I think, one of those important questions. You know, what what do we do with these beliefs we have, you know, about people's masculinity and femininity and how can they best serve us? You know, how can we build on... Um, what it is about manhood or womanhood, you know, that's positive, that helps to build families, that helps people to um, become grounded, you know, and in touch with themselves and both their psychology and their physiology and their culture, you know. How can um, these things help them to form positive relationships? Um, And how can... Uh, we also have the courage to cross over the lines, you know, that we often draw, you know, I'm, I'm masculine, I'm, I'm male, you know, but on the other hand, it, it, it's it's uh, important for me to understand how to talk about femininity regardless of what my opinions are about it or how feminine I feel or, you know, if there's a feminine side of me or I, I don't know how, what people think about these things, but um, we have to have the courage and the openness to talk about these things and to um cultivate them you know in our daughters so that okay. they they can uh, they can you know be the best that they they are they can um be comfortable in their bodies and um you know think carefully about what you just discussed you know things like aesthetics things like clothing um you know femininity uh, this is one thing my wife and I talk about oftentimes we're kind of appalled by um, what passes for clothing for little girls these days, you know, and I hate oh, to sound dated or something like that, but you know, it's like everything is so tight and so 
And it's like, you know, what about modesty? You know, leaving something to the imagination. You know, like those old school songs whereby, you know, you didn't have to say people were doing things, but you knew they were doing, you know, things, you know, being intimate and things like that. You know, so often in our society, in our pop culture today, you know, so much is, is uh, so much value seems to be in, especially in the marketplace, I think, placed on, uh, showing off and showing everything you got, you know, not holding back, not allowing subtleties to speak, you know, whether they be in terms of our body language, in terms of our body, in terms of our mind and our, our words, you know. So I think those are, are levels that we're going to have to uh, speak on and teach on, you know, if our daughters are going to have a good experience as girls and as and become strong and positive women. Well, you know, I tell you, um, I was thinking about that same thing because um, uh, Kim, what's her name, and uh, Kanye West had this baby mm-hmm. and they had a baby girl, and I'm wondering, are they going to? Uh, promote the, the, you know, the sexualization of their child mm-hmm. because, you know, this is her thing to fame is the sexualization of her whole essence. So mm-hmm. is she going to do that for her daughter too? You mm-hmm. know, uh, too too often I find that they they sexualize young toddlers and giving them these... Uh, you know, things, uh, bikini things that um, mm-hmm. does not, you know, allow for modesty to be even a consideration. Mm-hmm. And it's so sad to me because most of the people that buy this stuff be in our neighborhoods, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know, that connect with it. And I don't want to just say our neighborhoods and just like I'm saying our neighborhoods for people. Because right. as you rise up in income, it's very highly unlikely that you're going to sexualize your child to try to get them on a show or get them modeling. I mean, we have children that have so many um, wonderful skills and talents, but if they have to be sexualized, we need to shut them down, you know, and not allow them to participate in those types of things. This is true. This is true. Yeah, I think, you know, just um, as you suggest, you know, talking with our children, with our daughters, you know, as opposed to uh, demanding silence, as opposed to, you know, feeling like we got to be authority figures. It's like, yeah, all that comes with things. But in terms of, you know, trying to or or being, you know, a authority figure sometimes, it doesn't mean, you know, we can't have conversations and we, we have to, to learn to communicate all throughout our daughters' lives. So that you know they can um, appreciate some of the consequences of their actions. You know, whether it be things they say, whether it's um, ways they engage in relationships, whether it be what they wear, their body language, where they hang out. You know, there's all kinds of dimensions to this. You know, and it's like culture has consequences for people. You know, whether they think so or not, whether they like it or not, and. Um, you know, some people think they can just kind of float through life and, you know, the kids are going to pick and choose and it's um, kind of out of their hands. But 
I'm a strong believer that we need to take initiative to educate our children to, you know, open lines of communication and foster them throughout their lives. And, you know, not that things are going to be easy necessarily, but I'm not giving up my kids, you know, to any old thing that society, you know, has to offer. And I think we need to be vigilant that way, and I think that's part of protecting our daughters. Yeah, showing them... The, that there is a better route, that there is, uh, you know, a, a way that you want to educate them that um, shows how much self-esteem that you have for yourself. Because, um, you know, a lot of times I see women talk to little girls and they're rough or whatever, and even in my, you know, um, motherhood, there's times when I, you know, remember talking very rough to my daughters, and a lot of it had to do with me having low self-esteem because what I was looking at and being so harsh on them is because I, what I was looking at, I was looking at it in myself. Mm. And we have to realize that, you know, a lot of times when we're hardcore on our daughters especially, it's mm. because we're looking at something that is, Either we see from ourselves or see from the, the dad that we don't like, and mm-hmm. we need to deal with that rather than to turn it and make it a problem for the daughters. It, it, those are our problems, and, and we have to stop involving kids in adult issues and adult conversations. I mean, we do have to, you know, we have to regulate. You know, is, and, and we have to make a difference in what little girls are exposed to, little boys are exposed to. That's so true. That's so deep, yeah, you know, that whole issue of, um, you know, what we project onto our kids, you know, in terms of um, when those times come where, you know, we might, be disciplining them for something and it's you know they might just be doing what people do in terms of little people you know but we might see things read into things you know that are just basically reflections of our own um shortcomings or things we interpret as our shortcomings and you know in them unfortunately you know so we got to work on being self-conscious of these things yes parenthood is a really good good mirror, you know, in terms of like, okay, this is, you know, where we are in life. Um, but um, as you suggest, you know, we got to be vigilant. We don't pass along things and create a cycle, a negative cycle in the next generation. Exactly. And the 21st century is nothing to play with. It is right. definitely a, um, you got to jump on the bandwagon and get it now because if you let the TV raise your children. The mm-hmm. Kim, Kim, uh, whatever her name is. Kardashians. <laughs> yes, her and the rest of the crew will have, you know, our children doing all kinds of craziness. You know, dressing all kinds of crazy fashions. I mean, if you look at it, everything on the television is about the, especially the reality TV is about mm-hmm. the nasty. You know, people always want to come back and see who's gotten, you know, beat down or told off or whatever. 
And the reality is is that they doing it for the show. You know, mm. this may not be how they act in real life, but right. for the sake of the show. And people, the whole family sitting down and watching the Keeping Up with the Kardashians and, you know, and the Atlanta um, crew, Atlanta Housewives, and all these things are much too mature in terms of themes for children. This is true. Yeah, I think people really um, take for granted the power of mass media, you know, in impacting our children and teaching them and socializing them and culturating them. And, um, you know, even when it doesn't appear like kids are actually watching the television, you know, they're taking notice on some level. They're hearing and sometimes they'll make a glance that way. And so I think people need to be a lot more careful, you know, about that because, you know, we're, we're all consuming and um, you know, the television is a very sophisticated tool, you know, for teaching and for grabbing our attention and keeping it and for imprinting, you know, so that we'll wake up and remember things that, you know, we had no intention or concern about. You know, advertisers spend a lot of money to develop these sciences, right, of... of brainwashing. Uh, yeah, brainwashing, of um, convincing people, of influence... And you know, I think the flip side is also true. We can use the medium, these media, as our tools as well. You know, but we have to be proactive. It's just another level of politics and of entrepreneurship and of technology. You know, we need to be owning our own satellites and controlling our own television stations. There are people working that way and doing that thing, and we need to continue on that level. Well, I think that I read something in Facebook. And I don't know who wrote it, but I swear, as soon as I read it, it just um, came to mind that this is what we're trying to do. I think it was for the love of the people, but as, you know, black people move forward, that they're not thinking of uh, owning things themselves, you know, or stopping uh, white supremacy and white privilege and white ownership that it's more about them getting a piece of the pie and being a part of it and, you know, being exclusionary and having this power of being a black person in a white people's world. But it's not fair until all of us are on a fair and equal footing where we all can participate in a very lucrative way in our society where everybody has abundance because clearly Mother Earth make enough for everybody to eat, have shelter, be educated. I mean, and it's just a question of people having billions of dollars that they cannot use in their one lifetime, but they (laughs) will hold on to money, you know, and and that's why I say greedy people because these are greedy people. Mm -hmm. But clearly you can't... um, it's no way in the world that you need a billion dollars for your mm-hmm. life. This you know, is true. you can't even, you know, eat a billion dollars. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is so true, you know, it's um I I think part of the the deal with black people and with Africans worldwide is that we have a a 
a major problem and, and a cult, it's a cultural problem and an individual problem and that is that we don't one we buy into this zero sum game sort of mentality you know crabs in the barrel you know I, I, if i don't get it you know you're going to get it and i'll never get it you know that's that sort of thinking as opposed to you know as you're suggesting you know there's enough for all of us here on this earth and in this universe but um, I think one of the most essential underlying problems is we have just a poverty consciousness. You know, we don't think abundantly. Um, We think that entrepreneurship and welfare for Oprah, you know, and it's like, well, you know, we are Oprah. You know, we are, you know, fill in the blank, Michael, you know, Barack. You know, we are all those people, you know, Imhotep. You know, we are all, all those people who have that greatness in us. And if we mobilize our spirit and our consciousness and our networks, um, we can have these things if we believe we can have them. You know, that's where faith comes in, clearly. But, you know, otherwise, you know, it's it's yeah, it's it's just an ugly situation, you know, where we think we gotta fit into someone else's game plan and we get caught up in uh, mess, you know, that's not even our stuff, you know. And forget about us. We really need some goals, you know, some collective goals and some leadership that helps us focus collectively. That's That is true. And just to switch gears a little bit, I wanted to, uh, before I, before I uh, get off this topic, I just want to say that Queen Mother is also a daddy's girl. She wanted us to recognize that June 19th is the birthday of her father, Solomon Banks Sr., who is no longer right. with us. We give honor and salute him for making her a daddy's girl also. Um, Ashe. Ashe, I wanted to uh, move into uh, your 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 name, your Ifa name, or your uh, Yoruba name, and your um, career path as an archaeologist. First, please explain what an archaeologist does, because I know for me, I'm not real clear on archaeology except what I see on TV and may have read uh, in anthropology. Right, yeah, I think that's a a good place to start. You know, in, uh, in the United States especially, in this hemisphere, we traditionally those of us who practice it professionally view archaeology as a subfield of anthropology. Anthropology is basically the study of people, right, the study of culture and societies. And archaeology is a specialization within that where we study artifacts, we study material culture, we study landscapes and uh, ruins, and um, as opposed to other subfields of anthropology such as you know, linguistic anthropology or biophysical anthropology or sociocultural anthropology. Some people might uh, confuse us with uh, you know some of these TV shows you see out there you know where you know these cop shows are kind of out of control. There's so many of them. It seems to be the only thing that uh, these studios can produce these days but one of them deals with a forensic you know anthropologist, archaeologist um, however, you know, there's this association sometimes, I think, popularly with archaeologists and bones. And the fact of the matter is, most of us who practice archaeology don't 
deal specifically with human bones. And actually, uh, there's a fair number of us, I imagine, who are a little leery of dealing with human physical remains, you know, unless one were equipped to deal with them, meaning we have specialists on board on our teams. We have teams of researchers, you know, that's how we get things done. Uh, and there are people who specialize in that. Usually it's the physical, anthrop- biological anthropologists, the subfield of, of that area, that that field of anthropology who deal with bones. You know, many of us deal with artifacts and on a certain level, you know, we'll deal with burials when we come across them. But actually, to um, this is especially important in my work where I, I study the intersection of African and Native American societies. Um, burials on an archaeological site where I dig at can be a very challenging and complicated issue and it can actually shut down my my field work, you know, one, because I don't feel the need to have to dig up burials, and two, I'm sensitive to the desires of descendant communities, both African and Native American and African American and otherwise, uh, many of which, you know, people are very cautious and um, in some cases, you know, disapproving of archaeologists digging up their remains, their ancestors' remains or their kin or their, you know, their their cultural peers' remains. And so... I think there are many of us who practice archaeology today who are very sensitive to these issues and we want to do the right thing. However, there's a long history of archaeology whereby people um, would dig into Native Americans' remains. One of our first presidents of this country, Thomas Jefferson, is often pointed to as a classic example of one of these early one of the earliest people to ever practice archaeology professionally, more or less professionally. Um, you know, in terms of being professional in the way he approached, you know, doing it. And he dug into some Native American Indian mounds. And the ironic thing is that he had Africans digging for him, you know, in these mounds. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people of Native ancestry and otherwise cringe, you know, at the notion of, you know, slaves, you know, basically working for a master who, you know, this is one of these founding father type types, right? You know, all, you know, the the Constitution and all these great words we have about freedom, right? So, in any case, there's some deep history here. There's a history of museums taking in Native American remains, you know, during sometimes after battles between the U.S. military and Native Americans, And some of those, you know, there's been a whole series of laws, the NAGPRA, for instance, Native American Graves Protection Act, that came about, you know, as a result of some of these practices and repatriation, you know, the return of Native Americans' uh, human remains as well as, you know, their artifacts and their their, uh, ritual items, you know, that's happened in part because of laws. And in fact, I would argue we need a special set of laws like that for Africans and African Americans in this country. We don't have that, you know. But I say all this just to to try to kind of break up the stereotypes, right? Because one, um, I don't study bones specifically. I'll bring on board a specialist who does and this is I say this because I don't believe anybody should just be out there digging up any old thing you know it's easy to get the notion watching the Indiana Jones and all those other movies that this is just a big treasure hunt but really it's not you know it's just like uh, we don't um, wouldn't want a non-trained person to go digging in someone's mouth right to extract some teeth (laughs) that's how we feel about archaeological sites you know when people who are untrained 
you know, go start digging around looking for pretty things. You know, so I, that's another thing that defines archaeology, people who get professional training, training in how to properly do excavation, training in how to take field notes, which is one of the things that's not so glamorous sometimes, I think, for people once they do it for real, you know, and they think, they find, oh, this is a big part of things. I have to write a lot of things down and be observant of details. Um, we get training in something called, um, you know, advanced field techniques such as um, geophysics, you know, we can use special tools, round penetrating radar and otherwise, or hire other people who, who have these tools, you know, we have to, but, but even if we don't specialize in them, we have to know enough about their usefulness, their utility, you know, so these are things that can help us understand where things are under the ground without us having to, you know, engage in years and years of labor just, and by chance, discovering things. So there are specialized ways we go about this, you know, but these are some of the things that um, make archaeologists and, and some of the um, important things to remember, I think, if one is thinking about studying archaeology and, and material culture and artifacts for themselves. Well, there's two questions in my mind. One is, if you um, are or you do find a Native American site maybe that was done um that you you discover was a, a sacred spot or whatever, do you uh, honor the um, Native Americans by asking them if you're allowed to um, disturb their artifacts or you know? Because it seemed to me that Thomas Jefferson and uh, the rest of the people that used to dig they didn't honor the people of color. Mm -hmm. You know, they did not, um, and they still do not feel that uh, other than for the theft of it, mm -hmm. that our things are worthy to or sacred that they should ask or, you know, get permission to uh, do this kind of dig. Right, yeah. Now, that's a really great question. Um, I think or from what I can see and what I've heard talking with other archaeologists or a number of them who have good working relationships with various tribes or nations and um, a lot of what they do will never be reported in newspapers and it will never be appear in professional journal articles or in books because that's part of building a positive relationship or rebuilding and re restoring some positive professional relationships between archaeologists and Native Americans or other indigenous peoples. And well, I say that because I know people, some people who have built a good working relationship with Native Americans and who have uh, come in and helped them to locate, for instance, graves, you know, in an area maybe of a, a reservation or tribal lands that they want to build something or they, they just want to test to make sure they don't disturb anything as they're, you know, managing their lands. You know, the native groups, some archaeologists will be hired to help them with that work and to help identify places that are sensitive, burials or ritual grounds. And um, that's one part of things. Another part of things is, you know, the very question you asked about, you know, getting permission. I think that that's an excellent way and I know archaeologists who have done that, you know, not just in uh, Native American cases here in North America, but I've also heard that from people who work in the Caribbean, you know, with some of our West Indian, you know, cousins and all that, uh, culturally speaking, 
you know, in terms of Afro-Caribbean folks. Um, I've heard of archaeologists who've also engaged in that um, sort of practice of, you know, saluting spirits of the land or or ancestors. Um, Actually, I can tell you, (coughs) excuse me, um, part of my experiences in Jamaica in the 90s when I was um, learning archaeology were with a group of people known as Maroons. You know, you mentioned Juneteenth as, uh, you know, uh, a day of emancipation and freedom, but they're all historically, all over the world, wherever people have been enslaved, there have always been people who have escaped from slavery and some, in some cases built communities, fought wars against enslavers, and Jamaica is one of those places, and that's what I'm refer to when I say, you know, Maroons, people basically who are descendants of Africans who escaped from slavery. But I work with some of them, and I worked with a um, Ghanaian archaeologist, and um, that was, you know, a part of what we did, I think, in trying to relate positively was meeting people. And in some cases, I would be in situations where people were... um, you know, they were saluting their ancestors, you know, and they didn't do it the same way we might do it, let's say, in, in the Yoruba Ifa tradition but or in the Lukumi tradition, but um, they certainly had rituals and there were certain elements, you know, parallels that I saw there, but I think, you know, in trying to be there and relate and to, you know, seek permission, you know, politically, but also kind of um, seek to be there and take part in a positive way, you know, and and try to hopefully invite familiarity and show respects, you know, to ancestors during those types of celebrations, I think, you know, was something that um, perhaps might have allowed us to gain access to certain places we wouldn't otherwise. And I think, you know, I would I definitely recommend that for anyone who's working on as an archaeologist with a native group of any kind who practices any kind of serious spirituality, you know, and has beliefs in ancestors and in spirits of the land, you know, I think that's crucial you know, if we're... Uh, and that's one thing that archaeologists, many of them classically are trained as Western scientists or social scientists, and that's where there needs to be a training in how to overcome that kind of Western bias, you know, that materialist uh, bias right. in the West, you know, the belief that if I can't see it, if I can't quantify it, if I can't reproduce it in the lab, it doesn't exist. You know, that, that doesn't jive too well, you know, with a lot of Native groups and indigenous people around the world and Africans. And so that's part of the challenge for some traditionally trained archaeologists who don't have a spiritual background, a deep spiritual background. There are some who I've, I've come to know. And for instance, I know a guy who's Catholic, you know, and he think, you know, he studies African-American, African diaspora culture. And uh, he's kind of explained to me, he thinks that that's one thing that helps him try to study, you know, African spirituality in the diaspora is his Catholic upbringing. At least he had some kind of, you know, non-materialist sort of worldview, you know. Right. So now all of those things that were stolen in the uh, time before, you know, in the early 20th century and so forth, Mm -hmm. have they, uh, you know, uh, gave any of those things back to the people that they took them from, you know, because, um, you know, you still see in the museum... uh, the, the, these people in the, you know, like uh, 
you have in the Museum of um, Natural History, you have mm-hmm. artifacts from um, uh, Africa, and you have um, various mm-hmm. different centuries of statues and things like that. And I'm wondering, you know, an Egyptian uh, artifact, when, when do the people give them back, you know? Once you establish these belong to these people, you know, when when do they give them back? Yeah, that's another great question. Yeah, that's an ongoing process, you know, because of like that set of rules or laws here in the United States called NAGPRA, and there are international laws that different nation states establish, you know, in part because of indigenous rights movements around the world. Um, but that's it's really a, a, a sore point for a lot of people and even nation states who want some of their you know indigenous objects back or ritual objects um, is you know what is the process by which things can be handed over and I can at least say for North America that this is happening at a a rather robust pace you know because of the set of laws that came about basically in the 90s. In terms of material culture, uh, human remains, and ritual items, and other places around the world, you know, they have. It's happening to a certain extent, but you know, you go to England and visit, you know, that museum there in London, and you just, it just can be sickening sometimes seeing all the things that you know, you know, are from Kemen or for other places around the world, and it's like, wow, this stuff is just sitting here. You know, one of the there's a a uh, Oponi Fathers, the Ifa tray. Um, divination tray, you know, sitting in a museum over there in Europe with centuries old, and I just think to myself, wow, that really belongs with, you know, on the flip side. Right, you know, the practitioners, you know, the the keepers of the tradition and, and, you know, Nigeria and other places today, the flip side is we know that Africa has its issues, right, and issues with stability, issues with finances, issues with having the kind of money and security sometimes too. So, you know, those things need to be worked out and they can be worked out, but, you know, it just, it, it takes time, it takes money, it takes support, it takes unity, and it even takes, you know, the West supporting this transfer of things and providing some financial support, you know, which I think is rather fair in light of slavery and colonialism, right? For the protection exactly. of these things, for the establishment of climate-controlled museums with security staff, you know, and who can and and staff were able to you know create programs to educate people with them, you know. So there's a lot to it, and uh, I tell you, you know, things like uh, you know that are relevant to our own national um, news, you know, uh, the war in Iraq, it has created some incredible mayhem, you know, for our Iraqi people. And there are a lot of cultural critics over there who really slam us as a nation, you know, for not only, you know, the destruction of cultural centers that they have, you know, like community centers, but also uh, museums and other things, you know, and, um, how sites are being looted, you know, have been looted because of the war and, the um, regime change, the aggressive interventionist sort of regime change that um, we've engaged in, this U.S. is engaged in. So um, there are cultural implications, there are archaeological implications of warfare as well, and we have to be mindful of that. You know, some of us are, you know, when we say support our troops or support our military, yes, but, you know, to what ends do we use militarism in the world? 
Exactly, to steal other people's culture. <laughs> or destroy it, you know, purposefully or unintentionally, right? <laughs> but I, I will exactly. say, yes, that, that I am pleased to say that in some cases here and around the world that um, there are things being repatriated, um, but it's a really political process. Um, even I can think of a case of... Um, uh, she's kind of known in the West as Sarah Bartman, but there is a, a, a the African sister who, South African sister who um, they ended up in be. Europe. Did you hear about that? Yeah, ended up in Europe, and she I think was enslaved in in Africa, and ended up in Europe, and, and became pretty much a almost like an exhibition or a circus act or something, right? Her body on display or her anatomy on display, and. She ended up being, you know, after she died, you know, basically they decided her body was going to be donated to science, and then they were exhibiting her body parts in, you know, jars and things. And there was a long process by which South African indigenous people and, you know, various politicians of various ethnic and racial backgrounds, and as well as French politicians and activists who worked together eventually, you know, to repatriate her body and to bury it, you know, to give it indigenous you know, rights and other things or to let people just uh, celebrate, you know, her life. But that's one example of how Africans who have gone out into the rest of the world, you know, even their bodies have been returned to Africa. So I think that there's there's reason to have hope that this can be done and it is being done. This is a woman who had left Africa centuries ago and, you know, her body has been returned. Finally, I say. Well, we only have like one minute, so I got to invite you. I really, really want you to um, explain about your name and how your name, you know, how you got your name and how it's so um, relevant to, you know, who you are in your identity, and I want you to talk about names as, 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 as name naming people is so important because it eventually influences who you become. It really does, you know. And I, my African name, my um, Yoruba name is Tejumola, which you know really roughly interprets or translates into you know uh, one who seeks beneath the surface to find, you know, wealth, to to find the, the deeper meaning and value of things underneath the surface. Uh, I got that name, you know, and it wasn't a, it was not a real a romantic story behind it. You know, I, I basically got that name as a, it was a gift from my, my Yoruba teacher. He's uh, uh, raised and born in Nigeria's family and stuff like that. And he um, gave me that name as, you know, as a kind of parting gift as he was leaving the university, and over the years I studied African philosophy with um, Africans, you know, and I studied culture with archaeologists and stuff like that, and after, uh, years later, even after I graduated from um, graduate school, I became initiated to Ifa, and um, during that time, you know, as as one of the final conversations I had with my Oluo, my godfather over in Africa, I asked them, you know, well, what about my name, you know, because this is the one thing I've always heard, you know, people receive their, you know, spiritual names, and I think that's a great thing, but he was like, you know, your name is is fine, it, it suits you, you know, and apparently you like it, you know, so he felt no need to bestow a name on me, and you know, 
one way I was kind of puzzled, like, well, isn't that kind of, you know, I didn't know how to think about that, but in the more I sat with it, the more I'm like, well, why not? You know, if it fits me, I mean, uh, you can probably imagine how it um, even fits my career, you know what I'm saying? Like, in terms of, you know, I, I'm one of the earth, you know, I dig into the earth, I dig beneath things, right, to find, you know, artifacts and material culture, right? So it, it, it I think it suits me on different levels. That being said, I don't have any uh, hang-ups about my European name. That connects me to my European ancestors. It connects me to my African ancestors and African-American ancestors. And so um, I feel no need to disavow that or no shame in that either. And I don't disclaim it ever. You know, I take I take all my names because they all are part of me. And I think we need to really embrace that. You know, not I know. I understand why people feel the way they do sometimes about their names and want to change their names, but it's also important we don't rush to give ourselves a name and then years later we become dissatisfied with it, it doesn't seem to quite fit or we didn't fully understand the culture that we were grappling with when we decided to pick a name. You know, that's why, you know, I think it's really important whether there that there's some process by which, you know, we achieve our names and that's how I think in traditional society things go. Right, even in our own society, we get our names from our parents, you know. So I think that process of transformation needs to be looked at carefully, so that you know these names sit and they sit well, because you know what people invoke of you when they speak your name is you know crucial to who you will become. Okay, and you know what? That is the whole show in itself of identity. <laughs> I so hear that. I know that. Um, you know, we need to um, just even make a show on identity, you know. Do you know who you are, you know? I think that it's important that um, a name really uh, empowers you. And and we have to look at how we're naming our children and the, the thoughts that go behind it. I mean, I think that... Your generation and the younger generation are more clued into it than the previous generations. I mean, the people of my time, you know, um, at, it was a lot of um, naming from other things. But I want to get into it, and we're already over our time. And it's really a large conversation, and it's very important to, um, you know, treat it in the context in which it should be treated. But I want to thank you for your wisdom and your knowledge and your understanding. You know, I tell you, I always get excited yep. with your wife mm-hmm. through the show because you guys are phenomenal, and it really starts you thinking, you know, and that's what we have to be. We have to be a people of thinking and thoughts that uh, create the better for the collective community and not just our individual selves. So I give thanks for you, and I give thanks for the family that listens to the show and uh, tune in with us next week, and um, I'll try to uh, talk with you during this week to see if you're available when we can set that show up so that it would be, you know, we can talk about it in length, the naming. 
because from a naming ceremony from a baby to the um, name that a person leaves this planet with is so mm-hmm. important, you know, and we Indeed. we definitely need to honor and understand the process. Indeed. So thank you so much. You're uh, welcome. Uh, Go to play. Oh, no wait a minute. I, I see that. I can't even believe it. My little sister wants to speak. I'm shocked. Okay. <laughs> Miss Sandra? No, I had just wanted to say it was the Venus Hottentot. But then we had moved past it, so what I really should have done was come out of the queue. Oh, uh, you mean uh, Sarah uh, Bartman? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. But you know what? I did have a question because I totally hear what you're saying about, you know, being um, how America has to, you know, kind of be conscious of once we want to step into someone else's culture. But what about when it's like an African um, culture? Do African Americans really get to um, have a voice in it? Uh, a voice in what was that in names? Let's say, for example, um, there were certain artifacts, you know, oh. in um, you know any African country, or let's say, or even a West African country, which mm-hmm. I guess is where the the majority of us would have descended from. And mm-hmm. let's say there were artifacts or something being destroyed or or being taken. Do African Americans, you know, would would they be able to have a voice? In that, or would you just kind of be seen as the American? Well, part of that depends on history. You know, we need to build relationships. There are those of us who are Afri- as African-Americans or Africans in diaspora, however you want to think of them, who do live in Africa and who have lived there for some time where we've had an opportunity to be present, you know, be present at meetings. You know, we have friends, African-Americans who are in Ghana, you know, have been there for many years and who take part in their annual yeah. celebrations and all that stuff. And I think those are the those those are the venues where we can establish ourselves and, and have a voice, you know, but we have to be there and be present, be there for a while and um, get to know the issues in Africa because there's so much we need to learn about Africa from mm-hmm. our our side of the the pond, as they say, um, before we're, we're always ready to, or we're we're going to be prepared to speak, you know, with knowledge and with wisdom. Um, but we do influence things, and um, there's a lot of West Africans, I think, and a lot of Africans in general who've always historically uh, uh, gained a lot, you know, from watching what we do over here in terms of our political movements and. Um, so we, I can say, you know, specifically, you know, in places like Ghana, we definitely have much more of a voice. Um, and I can say, you know, from the people I know in places like Nigeria, you know, that either directly or indirectly, you know, we have some people who are able to influence things. But, you know, as a, a, a wider community, we have some work to do before we're, we're going to be ready for that or we're prepared to do that. Mm, okay. I, I just wondered. Yeah, good question. Great question. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, little sister, for listening in. My little goddess. Sorry. Right. <laughs> and um, 
This has really been a great show. I really appreciate you, Dr. White. And um uh, Pupo, thank you for the invitation. Oh man, thank you for coming. But I yes, definitely want to um talk about names. So that um show I would like to talk to you about and, and, and invite sure. you again and speak because you know, your voice is powerful. And Thank and you. and it's um, filled with information, and we all could use information. I hear that. So I want to thank all the family for tuning in. Please join us next week. Um, I'm going to try to get Dr. White back here again, and um, just have a blessed. Week and don't forget us on Friday with Friday nights with our Wolf for Take Day. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Odabo. Odabo.